but something like an intellectual duel. And here's how it unfolds. One rabbi would pose a question to another rabbi, who in turn would respond with a counter in the form of another question along the same line of thought. This back and forth continued until one of the participants had exhausted their knowledge by either being able to answer or ask a more deep and incisive question in response. And that person, who ran out of ideas sooner, would have to acknowledge with humility in the presence of the other that they were in the presence of a clearly more knowledgeable master of theology. In the spirit of good sportsmanship, the victor in such an encounter was then granted the privilege of sitting and lecturing the defeated for as long as he saw fit. On the surface, this type of spark cultivated readiness in anyone who put themselves forward to participate in it. But even though the initial intent was to hone your readiness and command of the Torah, the eventual practice was that this became a way that rabbis who were in competition with each other for reputation would use this as a way of, in the public, shaming their competitors and showing themselves to be the more superior and knowledgeable master of the Torah. It was a way of establishing social credibility and also to create a kind of, to boost your stats as a rabbi among all the other rabbis. The scene of our gospel lesson this morning unfolds at the conclusion of one of these social confrontations and follows Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem and into the temple. The lawyer who steps forward to interrogate Jesus has patiently awaited his turn to do so. Prior to him in the gospel, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then the Pharisees, again, each posed a series of pointed and trick questions designed to humiliate Jesus or to coax him into making statements, uh, unguarded statements, that they could then use against him. But time and again, Jesus had thwarted these attempts to ensnare him, consistently turning the tables on his questioners. And remarkably, Despite Jesus's swiftly prevailing over everyone he encountered, he graciously refrained from capitalizing on his victories to engage in that kind of shaming that the other rabbis would gladly have availed themselves of. Instead, Jesus would very often, even though he knew the questions were asked in bad faith, after triumphing over the, the asker of the questions, would then keep the dialogue going helping the other person who was in a weaker position to become stronger, if they would just keep talking to him. But each time, unfortunately, and to the detriment of the person who challenged Jesus, they would, with embarrassment and anger, retreat back into the crowd and refuse to engage Jesus any further. Thus, when the expert in sacred law steps forward in our gospel lesson, most of the truly challenging questions, the real gotcha moments of the Torah, have already been posed to Jesus by his superiors in the council. His question then appeared deceptively simple. Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? This was Judaism 101. 
Every Jewish man knew this answer from daily repetition since childhood. It was ingrained in the repeated teaching of what was called the Shema, extracted from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, and strength. Jesus concurred with this answer. But then he added an additional commandment sourced from Leviticus chapter 19, quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This subtle addition revealed a profound wisdom in The unity of these two commandments was rooted in humanity's creation in the likeness of God in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. To love God, of course, was paramount. But to fail to love those who were created in his likeness was inconsistent with a love for God. Love for God always takes precedence, but love for one's neighbor was its natural consequence. Fulfilling these commandments, if done together, always encompassed the entire law, and the rest of the law was an elaboration on what it meant to keep these two commandments. This was the essence of the wisdom that the lawyer had dedicated to his life to master. Any subsequent questions would merely serve as footnotes to these foundational truths. Jesus responded to his question flawlessly, as he had every time before. And he employed this victory, this sudden moment of utter clarity, not to shame the lawyer, but to beckon him and the other experts that were gathered around him to look beyond the superficial contest they've been engaging in and to grasp the deeper truths that they have been overlooking because they have been so obsessed with status and reputation. St. Mark's version of this same story even recounts Jesus telling this lawyer that he was very close to the kingdom of God in this moment. Yet the lawyer, as everyone else before him, retreated back into the crowd. These men spurned the offer to continue in dialogue with the Son of God. They fell silent, and then they began to plot Jesus' destruction. In the context of the Gospel as a whole, this episode carries with it a kind of sad irony. Written to illuminate primarily a Jewish audience, St. Matthew's account portrays Jesus as the embodiment of the Torah that the Jews had spent their whole existence creating a culture around, that they were constantly obsessed with pointing themselves toward. It's both sad, it's kind of darkly humorous and profoundly sad that these Torah experts found themselves in the presence of the very Torah itself made flesh, attempting to elevate themselves by undermining him. These individuals were devoted to the things of God, and faithfulness to God was their stated highest priority. Nevertheless, among this assembly of religious professionals, we find a sobering warning in our gospel lesson that even sacred matters can be employed to alienate us from God, from the love of God, and from fellow, our love for fellow humans. The desire to perceive God 
through the law and wisdom, became for these experts in the law a love for the law itself and not for the giver of the law, which ultimately blinded them to God and the law made flesh when he stood right in front of them. Our collect for this morning echoes the language of the baptismal vows that we just heard at the baptismal font. We witnessed being made for our new sister Lucy just a few minutes ago. Unlike her, for many of us, the newness of baptism is pretty distant. Even the renewal of that life at Easter that we commemorate every year is now months behind us. And we have yet to be shaken up by the warning shots announcing Advent. This late into the Trinity season, it can be difficult to remain present and consistent in our lives of prayer. This prolonged period of time starts to feel meaningless and unpunctuated. But there's a bizarre grace, I think, present at this point in the Christian year. Trinity season is long enough to give us the gift of getting tired of the spiritual life. And it is long enough to give us the gift of insight into the ways that we've made even the trappings of the Christian life into a replacement for a relationship with God. Like the Pharisees and their colleagues, our best efforts to set Jesus in a comfortable and unchallenging place in our lives have repeatedly failed if we pursued them with earnest. All of our attempts to negotiate an optimal life apart from Jesus have been met with his gentle, poking questions continually to reveal that we don't really know what we're talking about most of the time. We don't really know what sort of life it would be a delight to have. And as with the Pharisees and their colleagues, Jesus again invites us this late, even now, in the Trinity season, to dialogue with him, to become his disciple again. He looks past the personas that we may have created and that may have calcified by this point in the Christian year. And he sees, when he looks at us, that same baptismal child that he took in his arms the day that he called us to grow in him. We are and are still becoming those little children of God even now. The transformation of our lives isn't yet done. We can never advance in spiritual wisdom beyond the wisdom we received the day that we too were brought to the pot, and that we became God's new children, a part of his new family. And so, having witnessed the baptism again this morning, and having been reminded of the vows that still remain alive in us, that the college calls us back to today, we're called away from the performance that we see in the gospel, that we, can, we know can only lead us to reject Jesus. And we commit ourselves again as we receive an invitation to come to the Eucharist, the opportunity to become young again in the faith, to let go of the pretension, and to come forward and meet him again as he offers himself to us. And if we do, 
we'll find that he is ready to receive us again as the little ones he always calls beloved. Even as we, who are aging in the years of this life, in the words of St. Paul, wait for the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will confirm us unto the end, that we may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.